thank you. Please bless us now, and may your angels keep watch over us. Help us all to remember that we do have a friend in Jesus. Now come and take our hearts and bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Look, let me uh, highlight something uh, based on what we talked about in our last meeting. You know, even though God is in control, um, that doesn't mean you can just sit back and do nothing. Uh, as if somehow, well, no, it's all right. He's going to take care of everything. Listen, you know, it's like I was telling, sharing with somebody. I said, well, if a house is burning to the ground, you can't just sit there and say, well, don't worry. God's going to take care of everything. You know, you got a part to play to put out the fire. So it, it's a rather just common sense. What I'm trying to tell you, dear friends, with Psalm 46, 47, 48 is, is that I don't care how crazy this world gets. God isn't going to be dethroned. He's still going to control. And that doesn't mean everything's going to work out the way you want in the end in terms of the issues. Like, for example, I mean, um, look at the insanity we've been having in the last five, six years. It's crazy, especially the last two years. It's utter insanity. You know, the... Uh, you know, whatever you might think about the vaccines or COVID or what—that's that's whatever. I don't. That's up to you. But surely, surely, dear friends, you got to realize by now that something's not right. Something's not right here. I mean, this is something's wrong and something serious. But look, you and I have a part to play. It's as simple as that. You know, you, it's just a matter of using common sense. That's all. So the scripture isn't teaching that God will uh, somehow excuse you of your responsibilities. You, you've got to, you, you know, we each have responsibilities. Each of us has a part to play. So uh, God is in control. And God's will is going to be done in the grander scheme of things. See, what people sometimes seem to think when the Bible talks about the sovereignty of the will of God and how he is Lord of heaven and earth. When, when, when you use those terms, some people seem to think, well, that means the path then is going to be in such a way that, you know, that, that relieves me of my, my duties. No. Um, God never said he's going to, uh, what path he's going to take. He's going to tell you the journey at the end I'm going to win. You know, so, it's, so it's like a game of checkers. You know, you don't know all the integral moves you may make or chess. You don't know the, all the moves you're going to be making. And the end of the, but, but God is saying this. At the end of this game, no matter how long it takes, no matter what moves I make in the end, I'm going to win this game. That's, it's reassuring you. He's not saying just sit back, relax, don't worry about anything. No. I mean, if, if, that's like you know, anybody do any gardening, a little gardening. I love gardening. You know, look, you, those weeds aren't just disappearing just because you pray. You can pray all day long. Get rid of those weeds, oh, Lord. Get rid of those weeds. Get rid of those weeds, oh, Lord. Those weeds ain't going nowhere. They're laughing at you. That's what they're doing. What you got to do is go out there and pull them up by the roots. And you got to just keep doing that all summer long. It's the part you have to do, right? If you want the desired end good vegetables, good fruit, etc. So it's just a matter of using common sense. That's all. So let's, let's, uh, let's, um, let's look at this here now. Psalm 46, 47, excuse me. We're looking at uh, uh, this psalm here is a psalm of celebration. 
I don't know what the problem is, why this thing won't move. Yeah, it's, it's on. Okay, is there any way you can get this thing going? Oh, here we go, here we go. Something happened. Thank you. As I said before, this psalm is divided into two parts. The first part dealing with praise that is due to God. The second is after God accomplishes his will on the earth, he will ascend to heaven and he will sit on the throne triumphantly. He will be, as what he declares himself to be, King of kings and Lord of lords. And so that's, that's the issue there. All right, let's now look at a, an expository translation of Psalm 47. Now, let God's people clap their hands and shout to God with a voice of triumph. For the Lord Most High is to be revered. He is the most formidable foe and can strike terror into the heart of the transgressor. Our God is a great king. He alone is sovereign over all the earth. So rejoice because our God is powerful. And he is fear, uh, fearful. Look, in, in, the, in the King James it says it this way, it puts it this way. It says in verse 2, it says, For the Lord Most High is terrible. Now that word terrible, I don't like the, actually, the, it, it, I don't like it the way it's translated there, but it's, 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 our, God is, our God is terrifying in the sense that, that he's both to be feared because he is vicious. He, listen, when, he's, when he executes judgment, if you're on the receiving end, let me tell you something. You are going to be terrified. So God can inflict terror. Make no mistake about that. He can, and he has throughout the Bible. You've seen recorded history where God has stricken terror on the heart of the wicked. But he's also, uh, and the word means also he's awesome, he's powerful, he's majestic, he is fearful. He is magnificent. So it's, it's, it's an infusion concept. And so he is to be, he is to be revered. Why? Because he's the most formidable foe can strike terror into the heart of the transgressor. So you see that tuba, reverence, revered, terrified. He is to be revered. You better fear his name. You better reverence him, for he's worthy of it. And then it goes on to say in verse 3, He looks upon the transgressor with compassion and longs to see them turn to him and be saved from their sin. In order to do this, God shall subdue the people under us. In other words... In order to do this, to bring about salvation from people, he's going to bring people our way so that we can spread the gospel to them. You understand? It's God's desire that the sinner turn from their sins and be saved. That's his desire. One of the ways in which he's going to do that is through us. Here's the cooperation. God's going to send people in your pathway throughout life. Maybe people you work with. Maybe, I don't know, go grocery shopping and you meet somebody. For whatever reason... Look, God put that person in your pathway, not to sit there and just say hello, but to go beyond that, because that's a divine appointment. Somehow, some way, you've got to figure out a way to tell them about Jesus. See, so, so, this is, so this is what he's talking about. He looks upon the transgressor with compassion and longs to see them turn, from their, from, turn to him and be saved from the sin. In order to do this, God shall subdue the people under us. In other words, he will bring the people underneath our authority in the gospel of, of, of sense. You understand? He says, he is of such infinite power that the nation shall submit to be placed under our feet for instruction. And this is talking, it really has a direct reference to the loud cry. 
the latter rain. When it gets poured out, God is going to let all the nations of the world are going to pay attention to what we say. The whole world. We're going to hold the world captive, not we of ourselves. But God's going to so arrange the circumstances where he's going to bring them to a point where they will pay attention to you. You see? This is a divine appointment. Um, it goes on to say, to those who love God, they shall be led to submit to the truth. But to those who hate him, they shall be led to submit to utter terror and destruction. So there's only two groups of people, those who embrace the gospel message in the end uh, and those who reject it. And that's what he's talking about there in verse 3. Then verse 4, he says, be content and don't be troubled about your fortunes, right? Don't worry about the fortunes, what, what awaits you, right? Don't, don't worry about that. We often do that in life. That's, that's a natural thing. You, and it's, it's a partly, it's, it's actually good, a healthy thing. You want to know, you know what's going to happen to you in the future in some aspects. But um, in this particular case, listen, don't worry about these kind of issues. For God knows what's best for us. That is why he shall choose our inheritance for us. Our fortunes are at his disposal. We don't choose. We can cho Listen, we choose either to allow him to save us or not to save us. But at the end, we're, it's not like a smorgasbord. You go around and say, I'd like to have that. I want this. I want that. And God says, no, I'm going to appoint myself as the one to choose the fortunes for your life. And that I have divinely ordained to be the crown of life. That's your fortune. To live for eternity. So this is what he's talking about. He goes on to say, the excellent land of Jacob, whom he loved is to be our heritage. The heavenly Canaan will be our portion. So in other words, the land of Jacob that he's referring to, he's, it's a type, a foreshadowing of what awaits the saints. He's telling you, don't worry about the fortunes that await you. He said, don't, don't worry about that. Don't try to think you're going to plan and choose what you're going to. He says, I've got that already taken care of. I've chosen for you the inheritance of the heavenly Canaan, eternal life. So that's why. So why is that important? Because a lot of times when you're, you can become distracted, when you're so consumed about things that are really unnecessary, you don't need to be worried. He's already thought that through. He's already got that taken care of. He knows what your fortunes will be. If you follow him, if you love him, if you do what God requires, listen, don't worry about it. He's going to take care of everything else at the end. Everything else will be provided for. And again, Sheila, it just simply means stop and think about what he's just stated. Then verse 5, when God finishes his work on earth, he will ascend to heaven with a shout, and the Lord will proclaim it with the sound of a trumpet. So it's very interesting. When he finishes his work, he, in other words, when God is done accomplishing the work of the gospel on this earth, and he's finished uh, in, in this particular aspect, okay, um, he then ascends to heaven. Remember, because he returns, right? That's the glorious second coming. And, uh, and that's not to finish the work. Because that's to take back the saints to heaven. All right? He's, he's meeting out the... His work on earth has to be done before the second coming. So that's what he's referring to. When God finishes his work on earth, that's prior to the second coming that leads up to the point. Actually, if you want to get technical about that, really, the close of probation, really. Uh, but 
So when he's finished his work on earth, he shall ascend to heaven with a shout, and the, and the Lord will proclaim it with the, the sound of a trumpet. Therefore, do not be slothful in your praises to him. Don't be slack in regard to giving God praise and glory. Instead, let everyone sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises, for his great work on earth is done. Now, it may not be accomplished at this present moment. It's being accomplished. But let me share something with you about the promises of God. When God makes a promise in the mind of God, please listen to me, in the mind of God, that promise is reality. It's a fact. It may not be a fact in your life at this moment in time, but in the mind of God, it's already accomplished. When God said that he would uh, uh, bruise the head of the serpent, there in Genesis 3.15, right? I'll bruise the head of the serpent. That, to God, in the mind of God, that's a done act. It's finished. It's over. You understand? It's not like that's going to change. You understand? So when God made the promise, the moment he makes that promise, that promise in the mind of God is already reality. We're waiting for it in our world to become reality. That's why he says in verse 6, listen, give him praise. Don't you understand? In the mind of God, it's finished. It's done. Satan is defeated. When Christ said it is finished on the cross, he wasn't kidding. So praise him. Cultivate the habit that God has already won. We're just waiting for the event to transpire in our lifetime. But it's already a done deal. You, you see? It's already an act of reality in the mind of God. Look, when God created the heavens and the earth, said, let there be light. The moment he spoke that light, that light became a reality. It was instantaneous. Boom. It happened. And so we know that in six literal days, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible makes it very clear. And, uh, and, but in other aspects, when God makes promises, sometimes those promises are delayed. In our time, not in his mind, because it's already accomplished. So that's something you've got to realize. Look, for example, when it says Christ was crucified from the foundation of the world. How could he have been crucified before the world was ever created? But when God devised the plan of salvation, the moment he made the promise of, the, of salvation, Genesis 3.15, the moment he declared that promise, that promise was a reality in the mind of God. It was a done deal. Now, that doesn't mean Jesus didn't have to worry about, oh, I don't have to worry about temptation. Or, no. He had to... Uh, he. Uh, laid aside his divinity and he took up upon himself humanity and through faith in God and reliance upon the promises uh, of the Lord, he, he, he was victorious in the end. But you have to remember that uh, Christ believed that whatever the, promise, uh, whatever the Father promised, he believed that God would accomplish that very thing for him and gave him confidence to go on to victori uh, you know, victorious living. So it's, it's all about how you have your mind set on the promises. And too often, though, we don't praise him. 
because God has already achieved his victory. We've just got to wait for it, and we've got to participate doing our part and cooperating with him in order to, to gain that victory. Again, it's not the pathway of how it is achieved. That remains to be seen. We do know this. The Bible says there will be a new heavens and a new earth, right? In the mind of God, that's already a fact of reality. In other words, that's going to happen. Now, from now to then, how that pathway is chosen in terms of what road you'll take out, that remains to be seen. That's all based on your choices you make in life. But let me tell you, it's this, God is not going to be denied. Satan's not going to outfox Jesus Christ. Not going to happen. It's not going to happen. So this is what he's referring to. So don't be slothful in praising God. Give him praise. He says, for God is the king of all the earth. He reigns supreme. Therefore, let everyone sing praises with an intelligent understanding and with deep appreciation for the song of praise. Sing it like you mean it. Verse 8 says, Our God reigns over the heathen. The affairs of men are in his hands. He, God sits upon the throne of his holiness and is ever ready to execute judgment. Oops. No. Let's go back. One more. Here we go. It says, the princes of the people are gathered together as well as the people of, God, of the God of Abraham. They have assembled to celebrate his glory. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is our defense. He is greatly exalted. So if the shields of the earth belong to God, if he, he controls, a, a shield is a defensive weapon, right? It's not an offensive weapon. It's a defensive weapon. So if all the defensive weapons belong to God, and he says, then God is our defense, it's an emphasis on what kind of a God we serve. He, he is a great defender. He's a great defender. He will, he will help you. He'll defend you. He'll fight the battles uh, for you. And so you've you got to just realize that. Now that's Psalm 47. So you see here is a psalm of celebration of victory. God is good. He is great. So he's celebrating that. He's rejoicing. Now, when you come to Psalm 48, though, now he's going to sh shift it slightly. Look what he says. Now, this is an analysis of Psalm 48. So look what it says here. Verses 1 to 3. <clears throat> it says, the Lord is great. Praise him. God is our only refuge and defense. And then 4 to 8 says, the wicked have assembled for war, but they shall perish, uh, suddenly perish. So, Really, when you're getting here in verses 1 to 3, is a, once more a reassurance that God is going to take care of us. He'll defend us. He's our refuge. He is great. But see, then in verse 4, a shift takes play, place. And you find here the wicked assembling to gather for war. Okay? And uh, what's interesting in this particular chapter, I've really grown fond of this chapter in Psalm 48, because he's talking about the city of Jerusalem, Mount Zion. Okay, but remember, that's a metaphor for the church. And so in here, he praises God and the beauty and splendor of his church, that God's church will not be removed from this earth, that God's church will be, um, well, as long as this earth shall last, God will have his people. So we may go through rough times for sure, and we will be challenged on many way, in many ways. However, we shall not perish from this earth. 
You may, I may, but the church shall never perish. And so that's really what he's dealing with. And then uh, 9 to 11, let Mount Zion rejoice, for God is full of righteousness and his judgments are true. In the end, though the wicked will rage against the church, in the end, God is righteous and his judgments are true. Rejoice, because God's going to deal with this issue. He's going to deal. In other words, he's going to defend his church. He's not going to just allow Satan to beat up on his church. In the end, he's going to defend it. And then verses 12, uh, 12 to 14, consider the greatness of Jerusalem, meaning referencing, obviously, to his church. And remember the God of Mount Zion is, the God, is our God forever, and he will be our guide and protector as long as we shall live. And so it's a promise of reassurance. Even unto death, the King James says, God will protect us. He will defend us. Oh, even unto death. So let's look at this now. An expository translation of Psalm 48. Great is the Lord. And he is to be exceedingly praised in the city of, of, of our God and in the mountain of his holiness. Let, let the church praise him. Let the church praise him. And that's what he's telling you to do. Beautifully situated, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion. On the si north side of Mount Zion sits the city, uh, the, the city of the great king. So at this point, he's starting to show you how beautiful Jerusalem is. How pretty and beautiful and, the, and, and how impregnable are its walls and defenses. Now, who's he describing? Who's, who is God really describing? The church. Now, obviously, we have no beauty of our own. And naturally, we have no uh, way by which we can defend ourselves, nor the church at, at large. So when he says the church is impregnable, defensive, and powerful, and strong, it's only strong because the Lord is in the midst of us. So beautifully situated, the joy of all, the whole earth is Mount Zion. On the, side of the, on the north side of Mount Zion sits the city of the great king. Her fortifications are impregnable because God has made known that he is Jerusalem's only defense and refuge. So God, the reason they're impregnable again is because God is with us. He's our defense. That's why you can't penetrate the walls of Jerusalem. Okay? And he goes on to say, oops, verse 4. For lo, the kings were assembled for war, when suddenly, altogether, they passed away. They vanished. So here is all the kings of the, the world. They come together. We are going to march upon this city. We are going to destroy it. And as they're marching to declare war, all of a sudden, boom. And according to that verse, there's no apparent reason. They just simply vanish. But now watch how it happens. Verse 5, they saw the impregnable holy city and perceived that God was her defender. They saw the majesty of God's church, the magnitude of which is indescribable. And they realized the reason it's so impregnable, so the reason they can't take it down, they destroy it, because God is with us. God is their defense. God is sheltering them. When the wicked realized that they could not overthrow Jerusalem and that they were now in jeopardy, they became so dismayed, they panicked and quickly fled away. That's what the you notice how the tables were turned? <laughs> quickly got turned, didn't it? 
see? That's exactly what's going to happen at the end of time. The tables are going to get turned. Verse 6, they hoped to triumph at Jerusalem, but instead fear seized them there. And their pain was so great that it was likened, it's likened to a woman painfully struggling to give birth. The wicked thought that they could bring home the riches of their endeavor as the powerful merchants of Tarshish have so often done. But the fearful Tarshish armada was met with a violent east wind which came from the presence of the Lord and brought them to their utter ruin instead. Now, if you look here in verse 7 of Psalm 48, because, uh, believe me, it took me a while to get this thing uh, nailed down. <laughs> because I really wanted to understand the breaking of the ships of Tarshish with the east wind. And what does the ships of Tarshish have to do with Jerusalem when there's no sea? Uh, you know, there's no ships really there. It's Jerusalem's on land. It's on an elevated hill. So what does the ships of Tarshish have to do with this? Well, the ships... Is really an armada of ships. You know, it's a it's a, a whole bunch of them. Tarshish is a city, and, and the merchants of Tarshish are very powerful people, wealthy people, very strong. So it's really another word saying, "Here comes a strong armada against God's church." A powerful, organized, well conducted armada, and it's fearful. But they were met with the east wind. And it's interesting, according to Exodus 14.21, Job 27.21, Jeremiah 18.17, Isaiah 27.8, Habakkuk 1.9, the east wind always refers to God sending judgment and, and destroying his enemies. So when it says that the ships of Tarshish shall be met with the east wind, it's simply saying, I don't care how powerful that armada is, I don't care how fearful it may appear to be, I'm going to annihilate it. I'm going to destroy it. So it's a promise of reassurance, helping you to understand, look, don't panic. Yes, it's going to be a fearful thing to see when the whole world is gathered against his church. When you think, man, this armada, this the organized body is just, I, I, I can't believe it. God says, don't worry, I'm going to send the east wind and I will, I will destroy it. I will destroy it. Then he goes on to say this in verse 8. We have heard from our fathers of the marvelous doings of God. Now how he wrought mightily in behalf of God's people at various times and places. So now we, ha we witness with our own eyes in the city of the, of the Lord of hosts, the city of our God, what God has done for us. See, it's, we heard about these things, but now we actually are witnessing it. We heard about the parting of the Red Sea. We heard about the deliverance of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. We heard about how Peter and James and John were delivered out of prison. We heard about the many miracles and the, and the victories that God gave to ancient Israel. We heard about that. I was told by our fathers. But now when that day comes, I'm going to see it with my own eyes. God's given you a promise. He says, you heard about these things. What I did, all these miracles, he said, hang tight, because soon you're going to see it. What a day that's going to be. He goes on to say, uh, 
God will establish Jerusalem forever. He will establish his church against all foes, all perils, all machinations. She shall never perish, for that which God establishes endures to all eternity. God's church will never be wiped away from this earth. Never. It's, never, it's not going to happen. Not going to happen. As I say, you and I may die. We may pass from this world. That's possible, right? That's just possible. However, his church shall remain forever. Verse 9. We have thought of your loving kindness, O God, in the midst of your temple. This is very interesting. In the midst of the sanctuary, we have meditated upon God's loving kindness. And so it shall be, not only in terms of the sanctuary above, revealing the loving kindness of God, but also in the church. We should think, meditate upon God's love and kindness. According to your name, O God, so is your, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion rejoice. Let the cities of Judah be glad because of your judgments. In the end, God judges righteously. And God deals out the exact punishment that justifies uh, what, has, what has been done. In other words, it, he doesn't overplay it. He doesn't underplay it. He deals exactly as uh, it deserves to be dealt with. And so we should rejoice that God is a righteous God. God, a God he's a God of justice. He says, walk about Zion. Now he's telling you, I want you to, he's I want you to go on a little journey. I, here's what God is saying. I want you to go around. Walk around Jerusalem. Go ahead. Go ahead. Examine Jerusalem. That's what he's telling you. Walk about Jerusalem, Zion, and encircle her again and again. And ascertain to the strength of her towers. I want you to do an, an evaluation. And I want you to evaluate my, that city. The city I love. The city I dwell in. And I want you to assess what's going, what's going on. The defensive mechanisms that exist in that church. Or in that, in that, uh, in that city. He said, observe carefully her fortifications. Consider her palaces, that you may tell it to the generations that follow. I want you to personally witness the glorious structure of his church. I want you to do it and carefully examine and see all the things that are great and beautiful. And then I want you to tell others about it. That's what he's telling. He says, for this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even unto death. Unto the very end, God will be with us. He's not going to leave you nor forsake you. And that's Psalm 46, 47, and 48. These are beautiful psalms, and they're encouraging psalms. These are the psalms that, uh, that encourage and strengthen the Protestant reformers. Tens of thousands, if not really millions of them perish, dear friends, uh, singing uh, and meditating and praising these psalms. Now, if it could strengthen a church in the midst of the most bloodiest period that we can even imagine, uh, surely then they should be able to encourage us. Um, they were written for a divine purpose. David recorded the, his experience. He was obviously being met with very fearful odds. The prospect didn't look good. He thought maybe possibly that he would perish, but he 
experienced the miraculous working of God on his behalf. And in so doing, he wrote down these psalms to encourage you. David is writing about his experience so that we too, when reading these psalms, can experience what he went through. So that we too may understand that God is great and he's worthy to be praised. I want to thank all of you for allowing me to come once again and uh, share with you just this time. Um, I'm very thankful to always have an opportunity to come. But I just want to encourage you here. I know that we've been fighting a great battle, particularly in the last two years. But don't you worry, dear friends. As I told you before, the good Lord Jesus has everything under control. Again, that doesn't void out your responsibility. You and I have a part to play. Come on, let's be the men, the women that God longs for us to be. And uh, we're all, as, as we, you know, we're all actors on a stage. We each have a part to play. The only thing is whether you'll perform your part well. And that's the key. Because when the final curtain drops, let me tell you, dear friends, it's over. And uh, we're, I believe, in the third act. And uh, there's not much more left in this play. Now, obviously, it remains to be seen some of the aspects as to how this thing will be, but, uh, you know, in terms of actually how the, uh, the path will be paved, but that's all right. It, uh, we don't really need to know some of those details. Uh, all that matters is that God writes, he writes really more from an ark, okay? And, and what I mean by that, when he, you deal with prophecy, you have details, but you see that God deals with what starts and what ends. And he's reassuring you that in the end, I, he says, I will be victorious. In the end, I'm going to be triumphant. So from then to there, the path that is to be achieved, that, that's not relevant. That's his problem. That's not your problem. Just play your part. Do what God, God requires of you. And what is that? He told you in that song, look, share your faith. Go out and tell others about the beauty of his church. Go out and tell them. Share your faith. You have a moral responsibility because Jesus is coming back. And I want to again thank all of you. God bless you for inviting us. And uh, may the Lord be with you. Let us pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for all that you've done and continue to do for us. Please help us each one to remember that you are a God of kindness and compassion. So bless us now and keep us. This day we pray. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you, and God bless.